hello, and welcome again to a Beatles talk show podcast called Things We Said Today. This is a show where we cover anything that has to do with the Beatles, their group years, their solo years, everything going on in the news, whatever we feel like talking about, their history, their music, you name it, we cover it all on this show. I'm Ken Michaels, one of the three regular co-hosts of the show, known for my syndicated Beatles radio program, Every Little Thing, and another talk show podcast on the solo Beatles called Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. And I'm being joined by my other regulars on the show. First of all, a man who's been a part of New York Radio now on WFUV for over 35 years, a great interviewer, a great DJ, and a Beatles scholar on that station. And that is Darren DeVivo. Hi, Darren. How are you, Ken? How you doing, everyone? Hi, Alan. Hi, Ken, our special guest. Great to be with you. Boy, you're teasing our listeners now that we have a special guest. I haven't even said that yet, Darren. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I, you didn't hear it from me. <laughs> our other regular on the show is a uh, musicologist who has written a number of Beatle books, including Got That Something, How... The Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Changed Everything. And also, From the Cavern to the Rooftop, he's written for so many uh, publications for many years working at the New York Times in their classical department. He's uh, always writing for Beatle fan magazine, the Wall Street Journal. That is our own Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ken, and hello, everyone. On today's show, we have a very special guest with us who's coming to us actually and this will impress you, from Glasgow, Scotland. Yay. And what will impress you even more is his very nice accent. You <laughs> will be thinking that he could be Sean Connery, but in fact, it happens to be Ken McNabb. Ken is the author of a new book on the Beatles called And in the End, The Last Days of the Beatles. You might also know that a few years back, he authored a Beatle book called The Beatles in Scotland. And he's also a journalist with uh, Scotland's Evening Times. We welcome Ken McNabb to Things We Said Today. Hi, Ken. Guys, thank you very much. I am so privileged to be among such stellar company. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Thank you very much for the invite. Well, we'll be talking about your new book, which has to do with 1969, the Beatles' last year as a band, really, and all that went on during that year in just a few moments. Uh, but first, as we normally do, we have the latest in Beatle news to get to. Some very interesting items, but we begin with the sad news on the passing of music legend Dr. John, mm -hmm. who was born Mac Rebenack in New Orleans. And um, you could definitely say his music was not one that you could easily define. He mixed all kinds of styles of music, pop, country, R&B, jazz, Cajun. Um, he was known for his huge hit from 1973, Right Place, Wrong Time. And in his career, he recorded around two dozen albums. And he actually did quite a lot of work with Ringo. He appeared on his albums Goodnight Vienna, also Ringo's Rotogravure, and he played on Ringo's Bad Boy album. And whenever I think of uh, Ringo with Dr. John, for me, I immediately think of the song Ooh Wee from the Goodnight Vienna album, because in the middle of the song, Dr. John does a piano solo, and then over that, you hear Ringo saying, that's my doctor playing. <laughs> of course, 
Dr. John was a part of Ringo's very first all-star band in 1989, where he performed Right Place, Wrong Time. He also performed at the beginning of the tour, Such a Night, and later um, he changed that to Ico Ico, and then he also did the song Candy. It's a very sad reality as we are about to approach Ringo's celebration of his 30th anniversary this year with the All-Star Band, that from his first band, five members now have passed away. Mm. And that's Billy Preston, Rick Danko, Levon Helm, Clarence Clemens, and now Dr. John. So the only remaining members of that first tour are Ringo himself, Joe Walsh, Nils Lofgren, and Jim Keltner. How mm. shocking is that? Um, there was a CD that came out on Ryko Disc of that first tour. Ico Ico is the only song that has Dr. John on lead vocals. And uh, Ringo issued this statement on the passing of Dr. John. God bless Dr. John. Peace and love to all his family. I love the doctor. Peace and love. Anybody want to comment on Dr. John? Yeah, I had. Uh, I was really sad to hear of Dr. John's passing. I had the pleasure of interviewing him on WFUV twice. And the first time was 21 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Hope I'm correct here. Uh, he was promoting an album called Another Zone. And I remember him describing the album that it was coming from Another Zone. <laughs> <laughs> that was his description of the new album. It was a great time. I interviewed him at his apartment in New York City. And his dog was uh, barking fairly often throughout the interview. His dog's name was Stupid. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was a lot of that stupid, the dog in the background. Mm. And uh, and then he came to WFUV. He had visited several times over the years, but he was back up in 2014. I interviewed him when he put out his um, Louis Armstrong tribute album, uh, which I believe is called Skidat to Dat something to that effect and he was just he was a character with a capital c and a very 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 sweet nice man and always a lot of laughs to be around and uh he's was truly one of a kind mm. easy to interview was he uh very revealing about himself or what um yes there was no issues he was very forthcoming and very uh pleasant and uh he was just a great guy in fact the audio of the 2014 interview that I did has been, I think, uh, kind of bumped up to the front of WFUV's website, uh, WFUV.org. And I'm also going to, I should take the link and put it on my Facebook page so it's easy to find. Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio is the page name. And I'll put the link uh, later today. I should have done it already. There's a few pictures of me with Dr. John there in 2014 in our studios that are already up on the page. So may he rest in peace, an enormous talent, and uh, we'll miss him. Yeah. Did you mention Ringo at all in your conversation, working with him? I Did don't recall. recall on, honestly, I don't recall. If I did, it would have probably been back in 98, the first time I interviewed him. I just remember the second time was a little shorter, a quicker visit, so we were pretty much concentrating on uh, skedat to dat I should double check if I got the title of the album right. Uh, but his Louis Armstrong tribute album from five years ago. So as for Ringo, again, if I did, it probably would have been in 98. But I don't recall, honestly. Okay. More news. Back in 1998, a posthumous album, compilation album from Linda McCartney, 
of all of her recordings from the early 70s through the late 90s collected together called Wide Prairie was released. And now, to celebrate the first UK showing of the Linda McCarty Retrospective, which is a look back at Linda's photography work curated by Paul, Mary, and Stella, Wide Prairie is being reissued on colored vinyl first, exclusively for a month at the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery in, get this, Glasgow, Scotland. I know someone that can go visit there. <laughs> yes, it's on the list. You know, it, uh, it, it's a nice compliment from Paul and the family to actually uh, base it in Glasgow. Uh, and I'm sure it will, I'm sure it will have a, a terrific reception. Uh, and I can't wait to go, actually. I've seen some of the pictures, obviously. But to see them in a, an art gallery setting, and Kelvin Grove Art Gallery is one of the best in Scotland, really. It, it's a remarkable place, and I'm sure it'll be fantastic, yeah. Definitely looking forward. I'm definitely going uh, to have a look. Uh, and, I, and there's a possibility I might be doing some features on it for some media outlets here before it opens. And, uh, and I think Paul is actually organised to try and speak to a few people this side of the pond to uh, coincide with the opening. But yeah, it's a great compliment to Glasgow and it perhaps just reflects again uh, the love the family had for Scotland back in the day. Yeah. Any chance you might get to interview Paul maybe for this? No, I don't. I'm not sure. That, I'm, not, I'm not aware that he is actually coming to maybe oversee any official opening. Uh, but I think he's obviously been very hands-on with it. Obviously the family's been very hands-on with curating the whole collection and choosing what images will be shown. Uh, but I've absolutely no doubt it will attract an awful lot of interest, not just in Glasgow, but uh, from all over Scotland, really, you know. Uh, but it's a great feather in the cap for the city to be able to host a, a collection like that. Yeah, definitely. Kind of ironic that this is a news item when you're on the show. Yeah. <laughs> when you started talking about it, I, I, I nearly held my hand up and said, I know something about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anyway, after that, after that initial release on colored vinyl at this gallery, the uh, release of Wide Prairie will be coming out on August 2nd to the general public. It'll be on colored vinyl, it's white and blue, plus classic black vinyl, digitally and on streaming services. They're not mentioning CD, though. It will be the first time since 1998 that the album was made available on vinyl. Um, other news. How's this for a pleasant surprise? The Queen of England has just announced, as of last Friday, awards, her annual awards. Both uh, Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, and Elvis Costello are recipients of the annual awards. Elvis will be getting an OBE for services to music in a career spanning more than 40 years. Mike McCartney will be getting a BEM, which is British Empire Medal, for his services to the community in Merseyside. Mike has had a career with the comedy tree of the scaffold, as we know, and also carved out a niche as a very talented photographer. So this will be some year for Mike, as he also has the new remaster for his 1974 album, McGear, coming out. That's yeah. two CDs and a DVD, and that's on July the 5th. The, uh, is, the, is the award is July 5th, or the release? The release of McGear is July 5th. I don't yeah. know when the award I have it down oh. as um, June 28th, um, but they may have moved it. Um, 
I've heard the whole thing. It's it's really kind of interesting. There's a, a second disc of material that uh, was sort of left over from the sessions and from some other things. There is a, a, a song called A to Z, which he wrote for Sesame Street and has his kids on it. Um, yeah. And uh, there are a number of cover versions of things that they have a fairly obscure things like Girls on the Avenue, um, you know, that uh, were left off and a couple of started things, things in progress. There's a number of things. And also, um, if you look on the McCartney Legacy website, which is the website for the book that Adrian Sinclair and I are working on, uh, I don't have the address offhand, but if you search for McCartney Legacy, the, the website will come up, and we have a, a piece about the reissue on there that I think Adrian posted yesterday. So, Interesting. Yeah. Those outtakes and those covers, is mm-hmm. Paul on them and the members of Wings? I believe so. We're we're not entirely sure because we're not sure that absolutely every one of them come from the sessions for McGear. But for the McGear album itself, with the exception of Leave It, which was recorded earlier, Wings post Lagos, Nigeria is the band um, with Jimmy McCulloch uh, on guitar. Hadn't joined Wings yet, but um, was there for those sessions. And... um, Denny Sywell is plays drums on Leave It. So Leave It was done, you know, way before, like almost a year before the rest of the album at Abbey Road as a single. And then when they decided to make a full album of it, they went to Strawberry Studios in uh, Southport, which is where 10CC recorded habitually. Um, mm. And 10CC apparently wandered in and out of the sessions uh Uh, loaned them an instrument that they invented, uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, Paul is, I think you can hear Paul on a number of the, uh, of the outtakes, you know, singing backing, but, uh, you know, I can't tell that all of the piano you hear is Linda. Some of it sounds like it could be Paul actually. Uh, So yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff on, on the second disc and the first disc disc sounds great. Um, because this is the first time, that they were able to get the actual master tapes for this project, which means that the previous Ryko disc version and the, I think, C for Miles version have to have come from something else, like possibly a, a transferred vinyl LP. But as you, if you if you read the story, I mean, it goes into you know what they did to find the masters. MPL didn't have them. Uh, Warner didn't have them, and they turned out to be up in Mike's attic um, collecting mold. So they had to be baked. <laughs> and while he was while he was at it, he while he was searching up there, he found a whole second reel marked McGear two. Um, which had the outtakes and the unfinished things, and uh, there were some radio spots. So uh, that's what they used for that. It, it, it act- his finding it actually completely changed what the reissue was going to be. I mean, it could just have been a 45th anniversary reissue of the album, plus uh, you know, Leave It and Sweet Baby as, as the bonus tracks you know, from the single. But now they had enough for a whole extra disc. So plus the DVD. The DVD is mostly interviews, but it has a promo of Leave It. 
That's interesting. If Mike knew all along that he had the master, then why didn't they use that for the previous? He didn't know all along he had it. He The first thing he what happened was Cherry Red Records, which is putting this out, called him and said, you know, can you give us the masters of this? And he said, okay, uh, yeah, I'm sure I can. So he called MPL. MPL had underwritten that that those sessions, um, you know, so that they could have, you know, complete freedom to do what they want and then shop the finished album around instead of having a, a deal with a label and then being subject to the label's, you know, potential interference while they were working. So MPL funded it and Mike assumed that MPL had the tapes in their library, but they didn't. And they said, uh, you know, we'll contact Warner and get them back for you from Warner. And they went to Warner, and Warner said, we haven't got him. And Mike decided, he knew he had some tapes up in his attic, so he went up there, and he found these along with a bunch of other stuff. Um, but he didn't actually know he had them. So, huh. yeah. Very interesting. Mm. It's a good thing you found them. <laughs> really? All right. Um, next news item. We've all found out about this in the last few days. Mark Lewison is going to do a tour of the UK, which will be called Hornsey Road, The Surprises and Delights of Abbey Road, the Beatles' final album, 50 Years On. This will be a two-hour live theater presentation with stories behind the songs and the momentous events that went on in the studio while recording the album. The tour's website is hornseyroad.net. And you can spell that H-O-R-N-S-E-Y-R-O-A-D dot net. The tour starts September 18th through uh, December 4th. 21 dates, and they're all in the UK so far. And um, I know that Mark listens to a lot of the, the Beatle podcasts, so just in case you're listening, Mark, if you need to, you could use my house. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to do any shows here in the U.S., I'm offering you the house. I'm sure my two uh, co-hosts would do the same. I think Absolutely, do. I would need just a week notice to just kind of tidy up a little first. <laughs> It'll be just going from the the, the co-hosts of Beetle Podcast tour. <laughs> And yeah, it's interesting, sure. just, just as, a, an, uh, as an observation from this side of the pond about, about those dates, they are all actually, and I think I may have mentioned this to one of you earlier, but they are all in England. They're not even out with you know, other parts of the UK like Wales, Scotland and Ireland, which is slightly disappointing. They're going to a lot of provincial areas in, in England and perhaps uh, there's a reason for that. Perhaps it's just to test the water, just to see what kind of reaction they get. And then if there's a good response, then they might broaden out. But, you, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's an expensive undertaking to take these shows on the road. So perhaps they're just waiting to see whether it can wash its face and, and make it financially viable to take it elsewhere. But I think I think you're right. I, I think yeah. that's what he said, that he's he, he's testing the waters with the first yeah. part of the tour and that and, and he would love to expand yeah. it beyond that if if there's interest, you know, and uh, he has a management company arranging this tour. So it's partly to do with, you know, what they can get gigs for. But I, I'm sure he'd be uh, happy to turn up at Glasgow and uh and, and give that talk there too. Um, yeah, I mean, that, would, that would be cool. I mean, but I think you're absolutely right. It just depends on on the, the finances, really, you know, and the audience response. But uh, it certainly looks a fabulous show. Looks a brilliant show. Yeah, you know when he um, 
when he talked about the White Album at the White Album Symposium in November, I mean, I think that was supposed to be a two-hour talk that went closer to three. Uh, Not sure how it it finally ended up, but it was absolutely brilliant. And if he does the same, even the same sort of template for Abbey Road, uh, it'll, it'll be great. I mean, we know he has the goods, right? He knows what he's talking about and, and he mm. knows a, a lot of stuff that nobody else knows yet. And, uh, so it'll be, it'll be uh, a good way to sort of get a preview of volume three, which I'm not sure any of us are going to actually live to read. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so we can get a, a jump on nice that. <laughs> He's also going to explain why this is called Hornsey Road. Alan, you know, I have she gets no the idea. inside information. Do you, do you know? I have no idea. It's really strange what I, <laughs> I saw that as the title. Hmm. I at first thought he was doing something with Bruce Hornsby. Well, that's what I was going to say, uh, Hornsby in the range. Hmm. Maybe there's a connection between the Beatles and Bruce Hornsby. Yeah. Maybe. We'll have to wait and find out from Mark. Uh, Some other news. First of all, a correction to be made on the upcoming tour that I announced on our last show, which actually has a title. It was 50 years ago today. This is a tour that will include Joey Molland of Badfinger, Todd Rundgren, Christopher Cross, and Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. And I did say half of the show performing their own hits. The other half is music from the Beatles' White Album. First, I learned the day after we recorded that show that there is a fifth member for the group. And that's Jason Sheff, who is formerly from Chicago. Jason was with the band for a good 30 years, and he was the replacement for Peter Cetera in Chicago when Peter left. And Jason has a, a great singing voice and also plays the bass. If you've seen the band Chicago in the last 30 years, chances are you've seen him with Jason Sheff. And Jason Sheff's father is Jerry Sheff, who played with Elvis Presley and uh, The Doors, to name two. Ooh, look at that. <laughs> all the all the trivia that you get on this show. Every day is a school day, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the other correction I have to make is that I had originally heard that the Beatles tribute band, Rain, would be the backup band. Instead, Rain's music director is working on this show. There will be a backup band, but it won't be Rain. But the main reason why you're going is to see these five musicians anyway the tour runs september 21st through october the 20th and i'm actually giving away a pair of tickets to their show in new london connecticut at the guard art center on october the 18th on my website a few more things danny harrison about to go on tour with jeff lynn's elo announced a facebook event for june the 12th and probably by the time this is posted it might be too late but we'll see if danny keeps this on facebook he released his first ever solo album called in parallel recently and this new special has him performing with his band and it's called para live scheduled to air june the 12th at 12 noon uh pacific time so as i said i would check to see if it stays on facebook on his page okay um nothing i could say about this although i do intend on seeing the movie have either of you guys seen rocket man or have an interest in seeing rocket man i haven't and i do i haven't either okay no i, I have seen it i know i know quite a few people over here who have seen it and see it actually it's it's, it's very sad it's uh, it's a very sad you know a very sad movie you know and, and it's so it's completely different than 
for example, the treatment given to Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, so it hasn't been out here very long, but, uh, you know, that the initial reviews, you know, as usual with these things, some are positive, some are negative. But, uh, you know, the overwhelming overwhelming reaction is that it's a very sad movie. Mm. Well, I just wanted to bring it up only because of the Beatle connections in the movie. Um, Giles Martin produced the new versions of Elton's songs with uh, Taron Egerton, who plays Elton in the film. He does the singing for those songs. I'm not totally sure about this, but I have read that there is some kind of um, inference here that John Lennon contributed to Elton John's stage name, which is completely false, if that is how they present it in this film. And I don't know if they bring up the whole story about um, John Lennon with Elton and if whatever gets you through the night becomes a number one song. John Lennon agreed to perform with Elton on stage which he did since the song hit number one. But there may be other Beatle connections. I'm, I think they covered Dick James in the film. But I'm hoping to see this film either this week or next week. So when I do, I'll definitely talk about it on the show. All right. Before we get to our main topic here, I just want to address a couple of things that were written to us here. We actually got a, a message here uh, on our YouTube page from our last show because we were talking about how the Russian album is being reissued on July the 12th, one of four new reissues from Paul McCartney, including Amoeba's Secret. And one of our listeners, Anton G hyphen F, <laughs> was talking about since, uh, since Alan was correcting me how to pronounce the Russian album, Anton wrote in the correct pronunciation for the title which I've always said, Shoba B C C C P, is Snova V S S S R, because it's written with the Cyrillic alphabet used in Russian and other Slavic languages, and the C is an S, and the P is an R. So hopefully, in all of my future broadcasts, I'll pronounce it right. Snova V S S S R. Thank you, Anton. This is why it makes sense for us to call it back in the USSR. <laughs> <laughs> you mean back in the uh, CCCP? <laughs> Just call it the Russian album. Yeah, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> but if you want to be correct about it, Anton just filled us in. And um, on our email account, we got uh, one of our listeners, Kim Angrave, writing Hi there, I haven't heard any updates in the news whether we are going to be getting a 50th anniversary set for Abbey Road as I would have thought we would have heard by now as it's June. Have you heard anything? Guys, you want to comment at all if you've heard anything about uh, Abbey Road? Because I haven't heard anything contrary to it coming out when we expect it, which would be September. Yeah, I've heard some stuff. Um, they definitely want to do it. Um, and from what I hear, there are some people around who've heard the actual remix of the album itself that Giles has done and who say it sounds absolutely spectacular. Uh, not really a surprise. They had very good technology for that album. Um, it almost doesn't need a remix, so I'm kind of wondering what the remix will be like. 
and uh, their their problem is, uh, and you know, they got into this in the liner notes to the anthology as well. You know, as they went further and further along, it, it became, with the exception of Let It Be, it became harder and harder to find outtakes because they were adding to a multi-track basis, and that's why a lot of the things for the the late stuff on the anthology are what we would call outfakes. You know, they're they're basically remixed versions that have maybe a an alternate vocal line that was uh scuttled and things like that and um although you know there were some interesting things on anthology three so uh if they return to those and maybe give us a a purer version of uh you know as they did with the pepper stuff that would be good and there is as as we know i mean just from bootlegs there's the long version of something with the uh jam at the end and they could give us the medley uh as it was originally edited with the with her majesty within it but they are scrambling around looking for outtakes um i'm pretty sure that giles and the people at apple are pretty up on what's out on bootlegs so they probably know but I figured if you wanted to contribute some ideas, since they seem to be looking, why not just write to Apple? And here is their mailing address. It is 27 Ovington Square. That's O-V-I-N-G-T-O-N. London, S as in Sam, W-3, 7-J-L. That's J-L as in John Lennon. So, you have any brilliant suggestions for them? Um, send them along. Maybe uh, Mike McCartney should check his attic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. He may have some tapes up there. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hope that it does come out when we were expecting it, because that would be the 50th anniversary in September. Yeah. Mm. All right. So, as I said earlier, Ken McNabb is our special guest, and he's the author of a brand new book, And in the End, The Last Days of the Beatles. And it's all about the year 1969 when so much was happening, the Let It Be sessions, Get Back, Let It Be, the Abbey Road album, all the stuff in between. And um, it's about everything that went on with the band that year. So, Ken, why don't you just give the folks uh, a quick overview of the book and tell us what this book covers that maybe we haven't gotten from other Beatle books. And I must admit that one book that I've always wanted to read and it's only just recently that I even finished the book, was um, You Never Give Me Your Money by Peter Doggett, which really goes into detail more than anything about all the legal problems that the Beatles had, especially with Alan Klein. And it really helped you to understand what the Beatles were going through kind of as it was happening. You, you feel like you're living it with them, much the same way that Mark Lewison's book Tune In is. How much of that book might have been a reference that you used for your book. And um, as I said, give the folks, uh, you know, uh, an explanation of what makes this book different and what it has to offer that maybe other books don't. Well, essentially, Ken, it was an idea to look at 1969 as a pivotal year for the band. Essentially, it was the last year as a functioning group. And there were so many things going on. In the, on the sidelines, if you like, you mentioned the crisis at Apple, uh, the crisis at Northern Songs. I mean, every day seemed to bring some kind of new controversy. You know, there was a lot of problems with John's private life. Then, of course, you get John's peace campaign beginning to take off. 
and notwithstanding all these things taking place, you've got them working on two albums as well. And so to me, it just looked like an interesting year. Also, looking at it through the prism of, of what would now be 50 years, it's incredible to think that 50 years have passed since that time. But I think you can maybe bring... The idea was to try and look at it and bring some new context to the whole year and to do it in a month-by-month narrative whereby people, if they wanted if, uh, if they wanted to invest in the project, then, you know, I quite like diary books myself. Say, for example, Michael Palin's diaries, where you can dip in and dip out in various parts of it and not have to, you know, some, some parts of it might interest you less than others. Uh, so the idea was to try and build up some kind of month-by-month narrative and, and see if that worked. But also, as you crucially mentioned, to try and bring something new to it. You know, you mentioned Peter Doggett's book. It's right in front of me, actually. And it, it is one of my favourite Beatle books, simply by virtue of the of his forensic examination of the subject. And he does go into the events of 1969, but, you know, it's not just centred on 1969 from his point of view. He takes it way beyond that. So right. elements of 1969 are in there, but they're not the focal point of the of the of the of the book. But it certainly was a reference point. But the idea was to try and bring something new to the project, and the only way you can do that is to actually speak to people who were there to try and bring some kind of nuance to the whole era, to the whole year, to the events. I think it's very difficult to try and find something which is significantly new, unless your name happens to be Mark Lewison. <laughs> I think Mark obviously has contacts and inroads and, and a lifetime experience. But for guys like me, you're having to throw all the pieces up in the air and almost become a rock and roll detective. And I do think that it's like anything else. If you look at it now through the prism, as I say, of 50 years, sometimes the picture shifts somewhat. Sometimes the tectonic plates aren't quite aligned the same way as the way there as the way they were then. And I think you can look at events that maybe have happened, say, for example, in January, and the impact or the ramifications of these events don't actually come into proper effect, if you like, until maybe a few months further down the line. So it was trying to, you know, sift through all the clues, speak to as many principles as you can, and then try and rearrange the picture into some kind of cohesive form. Mm. So as you mentioned, you you interviewed several people for this book. Can you give us an idea of, of who exactly contributed? I actually, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a journalist and, and, and I used to be a, a print journalist. Now I'm a production journalist. But, you know, I, I liked, I always liked writing a story. And, and the thing about the Beatles was that, you know, I always find that the story of the band is just as interesting as the music of the band. But again, you had to go to the source material. So some of the guys I interviewed, one or two of them was, I hadn't spoken before. One of them, for example, was a guy called Anthony Barnett, who was responsible for promoting and for organising the Cambridge show that John and Yoko did in March 1969. Spoke to David Nutter, who was Lennon and Lennon's wedding photographer, if you like. A guy called Andre Perry, who engineered Give Peace a Chance, in the hotel bedroom, Ray Folk, who was the promoter for Give P- for the 1969 Isle of Wight Festival, and the Scottish doctor who looked after Lennon and Yoko when he was after his car crash in the Scottish Highlands, and all these people. I think if you can tease out 
layers upon layer, then you can build up a slightly different picture to the one that's you know well known to as many people as possible. But the one that I would just mention uh, in passing is not somebody who was well known, but the one I was proudest of. If you look at the cover of the Abbey Road album, and I'm looking at it on my wall here, and if you look down to the left-hand side, there are three guys dressed in white overalls. And they just happened to be working at Abbey Road that day. They were all painters and decorators. So I think the one I'm proud of, guys, was actually able to track down (laughs) one of these guys who creeps into the shot and managed to track him down, and he was able to recall his memories of the day that the Abbey Road picture was shot and also to recall sitting in the Abbey Road canteen with these guys having such mundane things as, for example, a bacon sandwich. If you can imagine sitting at the next table to the Beatles, having a cup of tea and a bacon sandwich and chatting to them as if they were just ordinary guys. Mm, Wow. It's always fascinating when you get to hear from people that normally you've either never heard of before, but there's so many people out there that are part of the story that um, it may play a small part, but still have an interesting story to tell. And you throw that into the mix and and it becomes even more... Uh, interesting. Alan, you want to follow with the next question? Sure. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the book. It's a, it's a, it's a good quick read and, uh, and has a lot of, I, I think, um, you know, depth and perspective that we don't always get. And, uh, I was wondering, I mean, there's, as you say, this was a, a very complicated period with an awful lot going on, and the information is sometimes contradictory, particularly about, say, Alan Klein. You know, Alan Klein was a really complicated character. My feeling in reading your book is you were really trying to be sort of fair and even-handed about him, but, you know, there, there's a lot in his record that sort of leads to the conclusions that Paul came to fairly early on. Um, I was wondering wh- what, having sifted all of the uh, the information and even beyond 1969, where where you finally came down on Alan Klein as a, a, a an important character in this drama. I think in this drama, Alan, Alan Klein is the Demon King. Mm-hmm. He is the one individual, I think, where the most discord and division emanates from. You know, people. it's one of these famous recurring questions about who broke up the Beatles, and, and it's too complex a subject. But if I had to narrow one element down, I think most of the chips would fall round about Alan Klein because he was such a polarising figure, not just pitting John and Paul against each other, but pitting their respective families against each other, and he was a very savvy individual, uh, you know, this Brill Street hustler, if you like, Brill Building hustler. And um, and what I mentioned earlier on about trying to distill information that or evidence from one month that maybe had an impact further down the line, just to give you a very brief example of that, when Klein did his initial audit, when he was taken on by John, George and Ringo as a de facto manager or to look after their finances initially, when he was carrying out his initial audit, of course, one of the first things he finds out is that Paul has been buying up surplus Northern Song shares on the side. Not to a great extent, but enough to 
you know, to upset the apple cart for want of a better phrase, because there was always a gentleman's agreement between him and Paul that their stockholding, their shareholding in Northern Songs would remain equal. Now, Paul thought naively, perhaps, that there was nothing wrong with, in his words, having a few extra beanies. But later on, Alan Klein was able to use that intelligence to polarise the two men even further. And when this information came out at an Apple meeting, John Lennon was apoplectic and felt it was a, a, you know, the worst kind of betrayal for his songwriting partner to go behind his back. And, of course, you can just imagine smirking in the background like Gollum <laughs> is Alan Klein. <laughs> smirking in the background, rubbing his hands and thinking, gotcha. Because he knew that information would you know, drive a wedge even further between John and Paul. And at the end of the day, you know, he was not unhappy about that. So, yeah, if there's one element, if there's one guy, I think, looking back, and I say the picture can become quite distorted. And that's why I think you can look at things from a different perspective. I think perspective is, is very important in these projects. But, yeah, I don't think Alan Klein comes out very, very well. I do refer to him occasionally as the fat controller, and he, he can't sue me now, but, um, you know, there is an element of that. Yeah. It's interesting, though, Paul's rationale for, uh, I think you get into this in the book where he says, you know, it's uh, I, I can buy whatever stock I want. I, I want to buy ours, you know. So that was the, the rationale that he gave and the others weren't buying it. Interestingly, having gone through this in the late 80s when he went back to capital in the U.S. for, uh, you know, he had a very similar kind of deal as part of his arrangement with, with EMI at that point. He negotiated for a higher royalty on Beatles records than he was getting and just him, not the other three. So when the other three found out about it, they were pretty apoplectic, and his reasoning was exactly the same. I could have negotiated for a percentage of the Beach Boys sales, but I negotiated for a percentage of our sales because it's us. And they basically said, no, no, we, you know, we're all in the group. We all get the same royalty, and you shouldn't have done that. So it's, it's kind of odd, I think, that, you know, that this was a lesson he didn't learn from having bought up those shares. You know, it, it's, it's the same thing again. Um, yeah, I mean, from a PR perspective, it, it's not a good look. No. You know? And you can imagine how it would have gone down, you know. I mean, Paul was always very one for talking about the Beatles' democracy and this musketeer mantra of one for all and all for one. But when it came to uh, financial matters, to do that at that time, uh, as I say, I don't think it's a very good look and I don't think he came out of it very well. Mm-hmm. How about, you know, their their creative side? You obviously check in in the beginning for the Let It Be sessions and then Abbey Road as it slowly takes shape over the year, really from February until until the summer. Did it seem surprising to you in a way that, you know, while all of this stuff is going on and the tension with Paul versus Klein and Klein and the others versus Paul and then buying up all these shares and, you know, Clive Epstein and, you know, various people being insulted by various things that are going on. You know, uh, uh, John Eastman sort of suggesting that there might be something not quite right about Brian's negotiations with uh EMI for the Beatles royalties and and Clive being insulted by that and then 
you know, John, when they're just about to settle things with uh, the Triumph investors that uh, uh, for ATV, the, a- the ATV sale goes and says, I'm not going to be messed around. I've cleaned it up a little bit by uh, fat men in suits. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you, you have to sort of look at this almost as a, a sad comedy, you know, of errors. But the, what I was getting to is like, well, all this stuff's going on. And yet, they made Abbey Road, which sounds like there's nothing on that album that makes it sound like they're splintering, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible. I mean, they're, they're, they had a unique ability, it seemed to me, to be able to compartmentalize all the various things that were taking place in their lives. You've got all this business meltdown, you've got the financial meltdown, and the pressures on all of them must have been huge, must have been absolutely intense. But, you know, in one day you might have Lennon screaming screaming at Paul and screaming at Linda and screaming at the Eastmans, and yet the next day, for some unfathomable reason, they seem to be able to go into the studios and work together as a band. I mean, it seems incredible, really, you know, that they were able to, they were able to find a way through all that morass of things that were happening. And at the end of the day, perhaps they were able just to, you know, build almost a wall between one side of their lives and the other side of their lives. But, you know, certainly where uh, where Abbey Road's concerned, to be able to go back into the studio at that time, and perhaps they, in their heart of hearts, they knew that that was going to be the last time. And perhaps, uh, I think, as George had said, you know, it was just time to finish it up, to put a nice ending on the whole, the whole story, if you like, and try and produce an album that was worthy of their reputation and of their name. So, you know, but it, it, it is incredible. I mean, anybody else, I mean, even in any kind of business, it would be very hard to sit down with somebody and try and create some kind of chemistry, try and maintain some kind of magic at the same time as, you know, it's human nature. We all talk about people we work with. <laughs> and so Lord knows what they were saying, you know, to each other when the other two maybe not been there. Uh, so it must have been very difficult. And perhaps it says an awful lot to them, an awful lot about them, an awful lot about their their ability as musicians, that they were somehow or other able to pull all those discordant notes together to form one last swan song, which of course was Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. So I should pass you over to Darren. Yeah, I was fascinated listening to this, and I just saw the the Sam Cooke documentary, mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, and uh, was uh, not surprised, but still it opened my eyes that even... Alan Klein uh, had a negative impact on Sam Cooke's, you know, business. Basically, he screwed over Sam Cooke as well. And it just kind of made the the picture a little clearer for me of the overall personality. Had Alan Klein not come into the picture when he did, or maybe not come into the picture at all, maybe someone else was brought in. Ken, how do you see Apple progressing, specifically the label, because the impression I always got was that once Alan Klein came into the picture, he basically, Apple, for all intents and purposes, kind of slowed down as a, as a label with uh, less new artists, uh, maybe even less material coming out. Had Alan Klein not come into the picture, do you think that Apple would have continued to grow as a label uh, with more acts coming in and more activity and whatnot? 
it's really difficult to, to answer that because you're right enough, the, the artists that they were recruiting had had slowed to a trickle. And part of that is because to be able to bring artists onto any label, you really require somebody to dedicate and devote a lot of time to that artist. Maybe Hopkins, for example, had drifted away. James Taylor was already gone. You know, so to try and attract new new blood to the label, I think, was proving difficult. Perhaps the novelty of having a record label was already beginning to aid someone. You know, in, in fairness to Alan Klein, and I know he gets a bad rep and it is deserved, but Apple was hemorrhaging money. And it couldn't carry on like that because, like any other business, comes up a line in the sand where you have to close the shop. If it's not, if it, any other business, it's not, it's just not going to make it. So I, I think it was the serious crisis, even with Alan Klein there. You know, the, it could be argued that Klein took the necessary steps to try and stop all this hemorrhaging of money. It's just a, perhaps he did it the wrong way. Perhaps it was too quick. It was too drastic. But I think the, I think the company had a slightly hippie utopia element to it. It was well, well, well meaning. But at the end of the day, they did need a hard-headed businessman in there to try and, and run it. And it had grown arms and legs. You know, it had become like a, a, a hippie hydra with all the different elements going on with Zappo. And at the end of the day, how commercial? I mean, at the end of the day, you, you have a business to make money. And Apple was not making money. In fact, quite the opposite. Perhaps if they had got the right man at the helm, it could have prospered, it could have grown. And it could maybe have emulated the apple that came so many years later, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole thing is so fascinating because the whole process of what was going on in the Beatles was so complicated. And with all the talk just now about Paul buying more shares in Northern Songs and even negotiating a deal with EMI to get more of a royalty with the other Beatles not even knowing about it, at the same time, when the Beatles and Alan Klein were suing each other, John didn't want to have anything to do with the business side of all that, and he let Yoko negotiate. And in the end, the Beatles ended up owing Alan Klein $5 million. Now, here's Paul McCartney, who never wanted Alan Klein to be their manager in the first place, and that's his money, too. (laughs) So uh, on the one hand, you could say that Paul went behind the Beatles' backs in this way, and then why should he have to pay... Alan Klein any money, any of his own money. Yeah, I think it's, is it not is it not really the case that in order to extricate himself from Klein's clutches, he had to swallow this very bitter financial pill, and perhaps there was no way out. I'm quite sure his advisors would have said to him that no matter how much that sticks in your throat, that the only way out of this is to pony up this money. Uh, I'm quite sure it was the last thing he wanted to do would be to give Alan Klein, to use an American phrase, one thin dime. But uh, <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, perhaps it was the price he had to pay to finally be free of Alan Klein's clutches. And I think even John admitted uh, somewhat through gritted teeth, I think his only comment on it was that perhaps Paul's instincts were right. So, you know, but Alan Klein was a very shady individual, but... Uh, who, you know, he, he did, it wasn't just the Beatles that he managed to fleece. The, as you mentioned, Sam Cooke, there were numerous others as well. So for all the bluster, at the end of the day, the bottom line for Alan Klein was always Alan Klein. But, you know, they, you know when it came to the, uh, it is a bit like the Al Capone thing where they managed to get him an income tax. It um, seems a small price to finally pay in the long run for what was really a lifetime of, 
you know, I won't say dodgy dealings, but dealings that perhaps veered to the dark side occasionally. I think Alan yeah. Klein had a, a a weirdly sort of dual personality in a way that, I mean, he seriously wanted at some point in every one of these relationships to help the musicians who were under his charge make things right with the record companies, you know, get them money that um, had been sort of hidden away from them and doing his sort of forensic accounting. I mean, he he got the Stones a better deal. He got uh, Sam Cooke a better deal. He got the Beatles a better deal. But in every one of those cases... He also then did something else. Like with the Stones, I think he ended up owning their publishing and owning the masters to all of their Decca recordings with Sam Cooke. Um, I saw that documentary, too. It was really very sad. He, he, he had set up this company for Sam Cooke, had got him royalties that had been denied him by the, the record label, but then somehow... Alan Klein was in charge of it all. It was all like his company, um, as if Sam Cooke was basically his employee. So, you know, you see this sort of weird combination of really good instincts, you know, the Robin Hood guy getting the artists their due, and on the other hand, then ripping them off. You know, it, it's it's kind of hard to figure out almost. It's as if he is two people and one is in control sometimes and the other is in control the other times. Uh, another question about the dealings with uh, with Alan Klein and Alan Klein working with uh, the Beatles. I don't pretend to be very knowledgeable when it comes to the business end of the Beatles, especially at the end. Says this uh, <laughs> says this person who uh, was a business student in college, uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot of it I find would go over my head. Now there was a point, uh, I guess, by the late summer. When John, in a meeting, said, I want a divorce. Uh, and that was, I guess, internally the first time anyone had uttered that they wanted out. And Alan Klein told John to keep that under his hat, keep quiet, because I'm negotiating a new deal for the Beatles, a new record deal. That sounds awfully crooked to me that... And again, I'm not a, uh, by no means am I an expert here, but here you are going to you're negotiating a recording contract with a band that has essentially just declared that uh, we don't aren't going to exist as we had in the past. Can you elaborate a little more on those negotiations, Ken, that Alan Klein was doing? I guess I'm not sure if it was if it was capital in the U.S., if it was a U.S. deal between Apple and Capital that Alan Klein was working on, knowing full well that there was a significant problem here and this band might not be uh, exist any longer. Yes, it's a good point, actually. And, and I referred earlier on to context, and context is king in, in a project like this. And the reason for that is, if I just explain that what John's famous, I think it was September 20th, John's famous pronouncement that he wanted a divorce has to be seen perhaps through the context of events that took place even just a few days earlier, because a few days earlier, the battle between ATV Associated Television, which was owned by Sir Lou Grade, who was trying to buy the Northern Songs catalogue, the fight for that that had been going on, had been raging over the summer, eventually, I think it was in the first 
first two weeks of September where Alan Klein had to formally hoist the white flag because ATV had finally, finally managed to acquire 51% of the company's shares, which put them in effective control of Northern Songs. So the Beatles had lost control, or certainly John and Paul had lost control of their own catalogue. Now, that happened round about September 17, 18th, and John was fully aware that at that point, and it hadn't really been made public, but at that point, there's no going back. You have lost control of your songs, and they now belong to, and I quote, the fat cats in the city that he so despised. And this was working away, you know, it was burrowing under his skin. The one thing that bound him and Paul together was Northern songs, and John was very sentimental about his songs for obvious reasons. So when they have this meeting on September the 20th, and you are absolutely right, ostensibly it was to sign, if memory serves me right, sign a new deal with Capital in America. And I think they did sign the deal, but during that meeting, there was a sense of why are we signing this deal if we are not going to carry on as a band? And John's temper eventually just got the better of him. Not so much because, I mean, Paul was talking about, can we go back in the road? What do we do in the future? You know, are we going to carry on recording? And all these, it's like it's like a train. If you imagine the scene in The Godfather with, um, you know, in the restaurant with Salozzo, it's a bit like the train's going off in John's head and eventually this crescendo just comes to a boiling point and he says, I have had enough. I want a divorce. And, and it's not just John, it's not just Paul's incessant, cheerleader, you know, being a cheerleader for the band and we can do this and we can do that but lying in the background in John's mind is the fact that Northern Songs has proved such a debacle Apple's proving such a debacle, such a millstone why do I want to keep on doing this and it all just came busting out in one one moment when he says I've had enough, I want a divorce and of course you can imagine everybody else who was in that room, Ringo was there Paul was there, Linda was there, Yoko was there, George was not there, Alan Klein was there, and it was just a jaw-dropping moment because if ever there was a moment that crystallised the point when the Beatles broke up, that was probably it. And John just, it, it, you, know what, you know what John was like? You know, once it was out, it was out. There was no going back. His honesty veered close to masochism. And, and once he'd made, once he'd, and everybody's jaw dropped that was it and that was the moment where perhaps more than any where the band split up and it's an interesting point just to make that I mentioned earlier on a guy called David Nutter who was the photographer when the Lennons get married in Gibraltar he ironically by some coincidence and twist of fate was in Apple at the time and was asked to take some pictures of them signing this contract so he took the pictures was very quickly ushered out of the room and two minutes later, the Beatles effectively broke up. And I spoke to him about that. And, of course, he had no idea that he could have been a witness to such a, a pivotal moment in rock and roll history. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. but you know, you know something? How do we know at that moment when John made that announcement that that really was it? How do you know John couldn't have changed his mind? We don't. The, th the we thing don't. is, we, we brought this up on the show before, but... Even after Paul McCartney made the announcement when his first album came out that the Beatles were no more, George Harrison gave an interview where he said uh, it would be selfish of the Beatles to break up. 
maybe in the back of his mind, he was thinking, you know, this is how we feel at the moment. It could change at any time, no matter what any of us have said. You know, is this really final? I don't know if all of them really knew that. Do you think that once this meeting happened, they all said that's really it? No, I don't. I think you're absolutely right. I think there was always the possibility that John John, John shot from the lip. You know, he very much a spot-of-the-moment guy, and he would say things, and then you're absolutely right. Maybe after a week, he would sheepishly come back and say, you know what, guys, I didn't mean it. I was only joking. But on this occasion, I think there were so many outside elements, outside forces at play. It's hard not to imagine, for want of a better phrase, Yoko not saying, you know, you don't really need these guys. You know, you've got all this talent. You've written this. You've written that. And perhaps it is now time to stay, step outside the magic circle and see if you can make it on your own. But I do take your point entirely that really, who really knew that that was the end, as it were? You know, there was always a possibility. And I think Paul certainly clung to that possibility for a long time, certainly another nine months or so, that, um, you know, they might get back together again. And, and perhaps it was all just one of those spur-of-the-moment outbursts and John, John had previous form for that, you know. He was liable to say things in the spur of the moment and then after a few weeks, you know, reflection, think, you know, guys, let's get back to the studio just like the old times and, and everybody, because John was definitely the de facto leader and if John wanted to go back, they would go back. But I think as the weeks, as weeks became months and months became a slightly extended period, perhaps it was hard for somebody to make the first move and, you know, pride just does come before a fall. And perhaps it, it was difficult for somebody to make a move. And there were, there were all sorts of legal things taking place in the background. Yeah, I've, I've always felt that, uh, you know, at that point in 1969, there wasn't a lot of history about uh, musical acts breaking up and uh, splintering into individual pieces. So there was really not, there was Cream, there were the Yardbirds, I guess, and, and a bunch of others. But this was very early in the game in the history of rock. And uh, a breakup of a band, what did that mean? What does that mean? Uh, we're maybe not going to record for a year. You know, today, of course, it's, a, very, it's a, a much different thing. You break up and then you reunite five times uh, mm -hmm. uh, and have uh, farewell tours. But back then, I'm sure that, in, as you just mentioned, Ken, in the back of their minds... This could be something that in two years they would be back in the studio recording something again. I just think their four careers took off immediately, and 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 of course it was um, it was fun for them to have their own individual careers, and then suddenly finding time to get back into a studio or write together or whatever became harder and harder, and uh, and then the breakup then in time became permanent. Yeah, I mean absolutely, it's one of those great what-if moments, you know, and, and could you really recapture the magic that you had before? From a personal point of view, I'm not disappointed that they broke up. And the reason for that is because if I look at that image of the Abbey Road cover, I see four guys who never age as a band. That is the image that crystallises the last year together. And they go out on a magnificent high. And when I look at that, that particular image, I see a band frozen in rock and roll amber. They never age. That is the way that they go out. And for them, maybe later on to, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, nowadays, bands can disappear for five years and come back with an album. 
it's dead or good, it's par for the course. These guys were doing two albums a year. I mean, the, the work ethic and the body of work that they left behind is will never, ever be repeated. But I do think that rather than see them, I don't want to uh, quote Neil Young and get it wrong, <laughs> but rather than see them burn out, I'm not unhappy that they, they, perhaps they were a product of their times and it would have been difficult for them to try and, and, and to that moment. I do look at them now and think you know, that that was the right moment to walk off the stage and say thank you very much because had they come back together and it wasn't as good, then you know you might look back on their peak years and through a different kind of perspective. And and I just think it was it was perhaps the right. I mean, you know, they have become the ultimate legacy band, and they could have become the ultimate cartoon band. I mean, don't get me wrong, guys. I love the Stones, but they have become their very own tribute band, <laughs> and I would have hated that to have happened to a band like the Beatles because the body of work that they, they left at that time, that legacy they left us will never be surpassed. So for that reason alone, yeah, I'm, I'm not that unhappy about the fact that it ended when it did. In a way, they broke up the right way, the Beatles. They ended it perfectly. And no other, I, off the top of my head, can I think of any other group that, that ended it perfectly scripted wasn't scripted perfectly and it added to their legacy but in a way there'll always be a lot of fans out there that are disappointed that they didn't reunite partly because of the fact that their catalog is as close to perfect as you could get and because they left while they were still on top yeah i think it's very hard that we, we the fans are always wanting more we're always thinking the next album is going to be even better the next album is going to be even better the only band i can think of that mirrored them in terms of breaking up when they were on a relatively creative high would be R.E.M. But every other band, you know, ekes out another album, ekes out another album. With each album, there's a, a notifiable decrease in quality. And neither, none of us would have wanted that with the Beatles. I certainly wouldn't have. Um, and, you know, I do like the solo output of them all. I, I think they're really good. But to try and trap lightning in a bottle again might have been a step too far. Of course, it's, it's an impossible question, really. But from a personal point of view, I'm not that unhappy about it. Mm -hmm. I, I think we should just be grateful for what they gave us at the time that we had it. Inter can I just add very interestingly that, uh, you know, I'm a child of the 70s, not of the 60s. Um, you know, so I'm coming at it from a slightly different perspective. And I had to give a, I had to give an interview the other day and a Q&A session. And somebody said to me, Mr McNabb, uh, did you ever see the Beatles live? And to say I was offended was is putting it mildly. You know, I mean, how old do you think I am? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, we share the same beard. I was uh, I was five when they broke up, so I can relate to that, Ken. I also was. Uh, I, I, I we had a show on this actually, our last show, and I grew up with wings front and center in my life and yeah. I went back and filled in you know look, looking back and got the records after the fact and uh, pieced my love of the Beatles together but for me it was wings initially yeah yeah and I, I also agree with you Ken I'm probably the strongest supporter you'll ever find of the Beatles solo work yeah on the radio and one of the biggest reasons why I'm the fan that I am and why I've done all the work in radio is because of their solo careers, because they all carved out an identity on their own, and they all had success on their own. 
Yeah, and, you know, they they had the greatest career as a group, and they had the greatest careers as solo careers. Yeah, I was I was interested to try and you hinted at it earlier on. I mean, the book's done has garnered a lot of very nice reviews over here, much to my surprise, but only because, you know, you're, you're wondering how it's going to be received and, and all the rest of it. But uh, one of the things, uh, one of the things I was conscious of was not to take sides, because I think that happens in quite a few books. So not to take sides, you know, when Paul and George have a dispute in, uh, in January over the recording of one of the songs, the famous, famous argument. But, you know, people think that, you know, that there was an argument between John, uh, between Paul and George, but in fact there was quite a lot of antipathy then between John and George. George was very unhappy of John's attitude in the band. So when I spoke to as many people as I could, and and one of the questions was to try and ascertain the dynamic between all four of them at the time. And of course, you can speak to four different people and get four different answers. It's like you know stories become myths and myths become legends. And you have to try and filter out some of the rubbish in there to get to the truth. One, just to give you a very quick example, one of the guys I spoke to was Ray Folk, who was a joint promoter for the 1969 Isle of Wight Festival. Now, if you'll remember correctly, I'm sure you all know that Dylan headlined it, but John went, George went, and Ringo went to see the set. And in the afternoon, they all hung out together. And I was trying to ascertain, well, you know how what was what was the mood between the three Beatles like? You know, were you able to? And he said they all got on like a house on fire. There was only one point where he could remember where they said, "Do you mind if we take five minutes out to talk shop?" But other than that, you know, the mood between them was very good. You know, and, and of course they played. I mean, remarkable as it sounds, they played a game of tennis in the afternoon with Bob Dylan. I mean, how bizarre is that in itself? If you can imagine John Lennon and. Uh, John Lennon and Bob Dylan on one one side of the net, and George Harrison and Ringo Starr on the other side of the net, doing you know the most. I mean, they weren't very sporty, but imagine them playing tennis in the lead up to you know playing this huge festival. But again, it was interesting to get to the truth of the matter, and you can go through books and you can you can through the internet, but unless you speak to the people who were there, uh, and he he talked about you know I said well. Was there any talk about getting up on stage with Dylan for a jam? And he said they didn't even have their own instruments with them. They're too professional for that. These guys do not do things ad hoc and just wander on stage under-rehearsed because the, the prospect of embarrassing themselves would have been huge. So, you know, all these stories that you hear, all the myths, unless you go to the people who were there, then you're not going to get the truth. And I think it's important for people who read books, not just mine, but anybody who reads books. I mean, I'm, I'm just like you guys. I collect books, and I want to know that they're accurate. So from that point of view alone, it's important to try and you know, get, to the, get to the people who matter, the people who were actually in the room at the time. Yeah. I just want to talk briefly. I know we just were talking about this period from when John made the announcement that he wanted to leave the group until Paul made the announcement publicly. The four of them in that period, do you have any new information about what it was like for them? Were they like walking on eggshells, not knowing what to say? Because they did go on and, and do their own work, you know, like Live Peace in Toronto and, and Ringo with Sentimental Journey and all. I mean, do you have any new information about that particular period and what it was like for them? Well, I spoke to I spoke to some of Ringo's people in the sense that he was the he was the one who was the most distraught. Uh, you know, he sat in his garden for days on end, really pondering the meaning of life. Um, and I think for him, it was 
a bleak moment where you really do begin to wonder, well, what do I do now? Uh, you know, he didn't write songs. Um, you know, he, he certainly didn't have the same creative reputation as the other three. So for Ringo, I think it was a very bleak period. The Magic Christian was just about to come out. So there was always a prospect of, uh, of an acting career. And you're right enough, he had already started recording Sentimental Journey. But I think for Ringo, you know, that black hole was beginning to open up where he began to think, what can I do now? To be honest with you, I don't think George Harrison was bothered in the slightest. I think George George had a very full diary. You know, he was working with the likes of Doris Troy. He was touring with Delaney and Bonnie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, George George was, um, you know, he was quite happy to, I think he was quite happy to leave it behind. And John, of course, was, um, you know, ploughing his own furrow when it came to, you know, his peace campaign. He met with Pierre Trudeau in, in Canada. He gave, and one of the things I was quite pleased about was to try and get, was to get access to a secret testimony that he gave to a group of Canadian MPs on their drug policy. Um, so a lot of that hadn't come out before. So the, the one I think it hit hardest would definitely be Ringo, because let, let's face it, he's a sensitive chap. <laughs> mm. I kind yeah. of feel like a lot of fans where if Paul hadn't made the announcement when he did, they probably, uh, we don't know if they could have stayed together any longer, but if they did, it would have been briefly. It was going to happen anyway. So. You know, the the funny thing is, and, and I know Ken knows this, uh, Paul actually made the announcement in like late October, early November, and no one even noticed <laughs> Right. In Life magazine. Yeah, he's he this little interview for Life magazine, and he says he he just says I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he said you know we've blown the whole Beatles thing up, you know, and it, it the Beatles thing is over. Is it, the Beatles thing is over, and it's over partly because of things we did, and partly because of things other did. I mean, it, it's pretty explicit. And the uh, I have my impression is because of the nature of that interview, the author wasn't really given a chance to do follow up um, questions. But also, her editor never questioned it. No one ever picked up on it. Readers did not write into life and say, "What does he mean by the Beatles thing is over?" You know, it, it just was like he he came right out and said it a month after um, you know John's announcement, and no one said a word. The reason, should, the reason for that is I can perhaps enlarge slightly on it is because Life magazine was a very low circulation magazine on this side of the pond. It didn't sell very. It was more to do with, it was more like uh, uh, nature or environment. And they sent two guys to track down Paul at his farm in Scotland. And uh, as you can imagine, he wasn't very happy to see them. Mm-hmm. So he, he said to them, he ran after them with a bucket full of rainwater. And he threw the rainwater at him. And one of the photographers, there was only a reporter and a photographer, has pictures of Paul throwing the water. Now, it's not very good from a PR point of view. And whatever else you say about McCartney, he's a consummate PR guy. And he said, I'll tell you what, guys, I'll give you two minutes if you give me a film. And you can take happy, snappy family pictures of us, but you must give me the film. So he, you know, the, the quid pro quo was that he got the film they took their nice pictures and he gave them two minutes. And as Alan rightly says, in that two minutes, he said, John married Yoko, I married Linda. We didn't marry the same girl. The Beatle thing is over. And nobody picked up on it. 
Yeah, and, Life was and, a pretty big magazine here. It was, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's just I sort of surprising no one picked it. Maybe special <laughs> smoke. That was a good point by Alan. Yeah. It makes it, I don't know, it's like what I was saying about that period in between John's, John telling the band he wants a divorce and Paul and April making the announcement. You know, it, apparently Paul must have felt this really was final. He did. He did. He may have gone back and forth, but it, it, in, in on some level, he knew that John was serious. Um, John had also talked to Clapton about it and the other guys in the Plastic Ono band that played in Toronto. You know, that Toronto concert was a week before he made the announcement. Um, so he had already sort of tested this out. He had talked to Klein about it and Klein had told him not to... Um, not to say anything, but from Klein's point of view, while I, I understand what Darren was saying about how it might appear to be sort of dishonest dealing with EMI, I think Klein figured he could manage John. He could he could persuade him back into the group because he seemed to exert some influence over John. John seemed to trust him, and he might be able to talk him back into it. So I think he was just telling him not to say anything publicly because he thought he could manage it. I mean, from Klein's point of view, after all, getting the Beatles was like his big goal in life almost, you know? Mm. And, and here he has them. He's not going to look kindly upon the idea of them slipping through his hands right as he's got got them, you know, in them. So uh, I, I think that Klein probably thought that he could uh, work some magic and, and keep the Beatles together. How that worked with, you know, his antagonism of Paul and the Eastmans, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah. But Com yet at the same time, I mean, we've talked privately, Ken, about this this meeting that John had with um, Paul and George that the Beatles proposing that the Beatles make another album and make it more balanced with more George songs and Paul and George vetoed it. And this happened after John made the announcement that he wanted a divorce. So how do you know how John stood? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty confusing. I mean, you know, like as it turns out, many human beings the Beatles were complicated, you know, they felt one way one day, one way another day, it, it, you know, it, you know, you know what it's like being human, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like it, we're, we're just a mass of contradictions and, uh, you know, people expect famous people to be more like robots than actual people, but they're in some ways even more complicated than we are because they deal with pressures that we don't deal with. So, uh, yeah, it's... It's it's hard to know. I mean, that whole time is really kind of confusing. I think Alan's right. I think I think Paul at that point knew John was serious, and quite possibly this time there was no going back. I don't think we'll ever fully know. <laughs> no. I mean, what what if Paul didn't make that announcement in April? You know, what if he just released his first album and didn't say anything? What eventually would have happened? Would John have said it? You know, we don't know. <laughs> Yeah, we don't know. They could have drifted back together to do a project after everyone's tempers had calmed down. But, yeah, who knows? <laughs> does, you, does your book go into any detail about John's heroin use? Yes, it and, does. And how bad a habit he had and how big a part did that play possibly in their breakup? Yeah, I mean, you know, with, I always think the band stood as 
pillars of truth, if you like, you know, that, um, you know, they didn't try and sugarcoat anything. And you certainly can't sugarcoat the fact that during 1969, John had a serious drug problem. How you measure the term serious is open to debate, but there's no doubt that heroin did have a part to play in his life at that time through various different times of the year. And I don't, I don't, I don't think it helps his mood swings. I think for the others, they were always aware that, you know, you know, it's no secret that the Beatles took drugs, but heroin was perhaps for, you know, for Paul, George and Ringo, clearly a step too far. I think marijuana, grass, pot, etc., was acceptable within band limits, but heroin was, you know, a different matter altogether. And I do think that it affected John's connections with the band. I spoke to Dan Richter, mm-hmm. uh, who I'm sure all of you are aware of, and Dan was able to shed some insight into how much heroin John was doing at the time. As usual, some of these things are embellished, but it doesn't take very much to become addict. It's too strong, perhaps, but, you know, you know there was an, an attraction to heroin, and I don't think it helped his mood swings. I have to say, I don't think it helped his songwriting. Um, you know, lyrically, I mean, he was a magnificent songwriter and a magnificent musician, but... If you listen to lyrically some of the songs, I think that they show that perhaps he was not lyrically bankrupt, but he, he seemed to be struggling with some songs. And I think I don't think the heroin helped helped his mood swings. If you if you if you can all remember the last photo session that was taken at Tittenhurst for the purposes of helping to promote Abbey Road, John looks dreadful. His eyes are sullen. You know, he's he displays the classic signs of almost junkie, a, a junkie appearance. I'm not suggesting for a second that it had gone that far, but he doesn't look well to me. And I do think that heroin was an issue. I think it affected his personality. And it was a, bla- a, a bad time for him, yeah, definitely. And he was course, very thin. The other thing was, of course, he blamed he blamed his relationships on the other Beatles you know, for his reason for taking heroin, which may or not be true. But yeah, I do think it, it, um, it wasn't good for him. Mm. You know, earlier on when we were talking about Alan Klein, you were talking about what a polarizing figure he was. But you also said he could, we polarized the families, the Beatles' families. I didn't understand what you meant about that, as opposed to John versus Paul. Well, because he, simply because he, he had them in two different corners, you know. And in the blue corner, we have Mr. Paul McCartney, and his seconds are John Eastman, Lee Eastman, and Linda Eastman. Okay. And, uh, and in the red corner, we have John Lennon and we have Mr. Yoko ono, and we have uh, George Harrison and Ringo Starr. So, you know, there was a terrible division opened up between them. And, you know, you, you can just imagine driving a nail through those relationships. It's bad enough when it's two guys who are like pit bulls with each other. But when you start to attack other family members, and remember, Paul had just got married in, in March. So these guys weren't just business allies, they were now family and it made it, I think it made it very difficult for Paul um, I, th- I think that certainly added ratched up the tension and, and the division between him and John even further and of course Alan Klein knew what he was doing, he knew that you know, if he could uh, if he could get to Paul through the Eastmans and belittle them, I mean you know, you couldn't get more contrasting figures, the Eastmans reeked of if you like Park Avenue privilege whereas you know, Alan Klein is this braggadocio spitball 
you know, profanity, profanities pour out of his mouth, whereas the Eastmans are much more genteel, much more cultured. They've got Picassos hanging in the hall. So, you know, you're talking about two completely different groups of people, really. But in a way, how does it benefit Alan Klein to have John and Paul against each other? Wouldn't it have been better for them all to agree? And they won't. Yes, it, it certainly would have been better for him, but perhaps... You know, you can't help get the feeling that perhaps he thinks that, you know, naively and, and somewhat ridiculously, maybe he thought, and I'm just throwing it out there, maybe he thought that the, the Beatles could, could carry on without Paul McCartney. You know, let's get another bass player in. Let's get John Paul Jones in, uh, for example, you know. Perhaps he's trying deliberately to undermine Paul with a view to, you know, easing him out of the group at some point or other. Uh, maybe he thinks that the other three are strong enough to carry on. It's a moot point, and there's no evidence to suggest that. But why would you go to such lengths to try and, you know, exile Paul from the group and make the relations between him and John, who are the principal members, why would you go out of your way to make Paul look as bad as possible in John's eyes unless you have some kind of ulterior motive or hidden agenda? Mm. All right. Guys, you have any last questions? No, I don't think so. Um, Ken, what are you what are you doing next? Do you have another project set up? Yeah, I do actually, Alan, and uh, I'm hoping it won't have the same impact on my nervous system as the last one, <laughs> 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 which nearly put me in a wooden box. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at another uh, another music project, not a Beatles one, although there's a Beatles element to it. But I'm researching a project on. Uh, rock and roll feuds, ah. you know, all the uh, all the groups, all the bands uh, who, for some re- reason or other, you know, broke up in terrible acrimony. Uh, guys like the Floyd, for example, even Lennon McCartney, the relationship between Keith and Mick, even for example, the Everly Brothers. So it's just it's it's a very embryonic idea. You know, so I said a, a nice Scottish accent there, embryonic. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it actually happens I don't know but uh, you know I like to work and I don't like to have too much time in my hands because if I have too much time in my hands my wife might ask me to do some DIY and I'm the kind of guy I'm the kind of guy that can change a light bulb and half of Scotland is plunged into darkness <laughs> so we'll okay. see it might not happen you could write a whole book on Roger Waters and David Gilmore yeah, but once again, uh, you know, the idea is to try and speak to people and bring something new to the table. Uh, you know, I'm quite happy. I mean, I'm sure Alan's been in this position especially where you bring out a book and, and you're, you bite your nails down to the quick because you think, God, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that it's been out uh, for you know a few weeks, I'm actually very pleased with it. I think it's okay. I couldn't bear to look at it because you look at these things through the cracks in your fingers but overall, I think I've done okay. The reviews have been very good. Um, mm-hmm. It's now on Amazon US, which I'm delighted about um, because, I, you know, nobody has more respect than me for the American fan base for the Beatles. I think that uh, you guys, you know, you keep that flame burning amazingly well. It's almost as if you treat them like divinities, but uh, nowhere does the Beatle flame burn brighter than in the heartlands of America. And I think we should all be grateful for that. Hmm. Wow. So you just mentioned that the book is available on Amazon. What are the other various ways you can get your book? 
Well, you can get it through the publishers, which is an Edinburgh-based company called Berlin. It's Berlin Polygon, and I'll spell that as B-I-R-L-I-N-N. Uh, so you'll be able to get it on their website. But as I say, as far as I'm aware, uh, it's now on Amazon US, which is excellent. It's also on Amazon UK. Uh, the reason I know it's on Amazon US because I was um, amazed to get a review on there, which was good. Again, I nearly looked at it through the cracks of my fingers, but it was okay. It was good. <laughs> so hopefully it might open a few doors. And it's also available on Kindle, correct? Yes. It's also available as an ebook. Yeah. All right. Very good. Why don't we go around and give everybody our contact information, starting with you, Darren. All right. Well, uh, go to Facebook. And uh, I have two Facebook pages, but the one that I would prefer uh, everyone to uh, join is the one called Darren DeVivo on WFUV Radio. Uh, and you can check me out there. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, some point later today, I will uh, get that link to the interview with Dr. John that I did in 2014. And my email address uh, to write to me directly is Darren DeVivo. That's D-A-R-R-E-N-D-E-V-I-V-O at WFUV.org, O-R-G. All right, Alan. How about you? Okay, the easiest way to get to me directly is through Facebook, either at Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed. You could also keep tabs on the Paul McCartney Legacy website and Facebook page. The website, the address is www.mccartneylegacy.co.uk. And that has the uh, the article that we just did about McGear uh, at the moment, and and various other things. And we're we're trying to keep people posted about the progress of the book and what's going on. So that's that. And to get in contact with us here at the show, Alan, oh, you have yeah. that information. Absolutely, you can send us an email at things we said today radio show at gmail.com that things we said today radio show is one word at gmail.com we were trying to be germanic i guess uh, <laughs> <laughs> um we also have a twitter account at, at things we said fab and there is a facebook page things we said today beatles radio fans at facebook okay and ken how about you? Is there a way people can get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on Facebook, Ken. I'm also on Twitter, Beetle Ken. Is the, uh, I don't know if this is the correct uh, correct term, uh, my handle. And I'm also on uh, Ken McNabb at googlemail.com if anybody wants to shower me with abuse. <laughs> okay, before I give you my contact information, I got an email here from a friend of mine who listens to our show, Rob Golterman. And I wrote to him because he had just seen Rocket Man. So I asked him about the same things that we brought up earlier in the show. And just so you guys know, the film does cover Dick James uh, with several key important scenes. And uh, Rob says it's well portrayed. Uh, they do not go into Elton and John Lennon's relationship at all. He says no elements of it were covered, except indeed the claim that Elton took his last name from John Lennon in a scene where he looks up, looks up at a framed picture of the Beatles circa 64 and gets inspired. Well, that's wrong. <laughs> okay, I still intend on seeing the film anyway, but uh, 
Yeah, so at least we know that now. Did you want to say something, Ken? No, I was just going to say, uh, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure being on. Uh, I can't thank all of you enough for the invite. Uh, I feel so humbled <laughs> to be in such stellar company and guys that are so knowledgeable about the band. You know, guys like me, uh, we're super fans, but uh, you guys take it to another level. And as I say, it's an absolute education and it was a privilege to be on. And I hope, <laughs> I hope you understood the accent. <laughs> well, no problem. Perfectly. I'm from I'm, I'm from the Bronx originally, Ken. So the Bronx accent and the Scottish accent are very similar. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can hmm. tell. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, Lip spokesman for Alan Cousin is refusing to confirm or deny. Yeah, <laughs> I don't hear it, but okay. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, few last things. If you want to get in contact with me, Ken Michaels, my email address is every little thing at att.net. A few things that I have to plug here. I got a lot of things going on on my website, but there is a special contest going on right now to win a double shot of books from Jude Kessler. Jude has written a series of narrative books on the life and career of John Lennon. I have two books to give away in one shot. It's volumes three and four in her series. One's called She Loves You. That's volume three. Volume four is Should Have Known Better. Just go to my website for that, kenmichaelsradio.com. I also mentioned earlier I have a pair of tickets to see the concert. It was 50 years ago today. That's October the 18th at the Guard Art Center in New London, Connecticut. Very easy to win. Go to the website. It's so easy. Just follow the directions. And finally, my weekly Beatles trivia in which you have one of nine prizes to give away. I can't believe I'm giving this away. Uh, the limited edition deluxe for the new Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus which is uh, a double CD, Blu-ray, and DVD, and a 48-page book with to go with that. That's part of one of nine prizes you can win every week on my website, or for the moment anyway, at kenmichaelsradio.com. And that's it. Any last comments? No, just to say I, I, I will let everybody know on this side of the pond know how, uh, uh, what, a great, what a great site this is, what a great show, and uh, try and spread the love a wee bit. Okay, well, it's great having you on, Ken, and it couldn't be more timely. we got so many things coming out in the near future on all this, and uh, hopefully I'll be interviewing you, you privately from my other shows. That'd be so, excellent. Um, That'd be excellent. Ken, yes, thanks thank so much. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right, so for Darren DeVivo, Alan Cozen, and Ken McNabb, this is Ken Michael saying thanks so much for listening. And we will see you next time.